Well, much has happened since last week in the biblical narrative. Um, This group of slaves stuck in Egypt raised their voices to God, and that's not unusual, right? Oppressed people have been crying out to God for years and years and years. In fact, that's probably the standard thing that oppressed people do. The surprise is that God listens and God heard. I mean, who listens to a group of slaves? Slaves are generally ignored. If God or the gods are going to listen to anyone, it's going to be the king. Those who are in power, those who are running the show, as it were. But this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah, or however you want to pronounce that name, this God does listen to this group of slaves, and through his servant Moses, reluctantly, his reluctant service Moses, he leads them to freedom. They escape Egypt with the Egyptian army right on their heels. They make their way through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is devastated by the closing waters, and now they're in the wilderness, the edge of their wilderness, the beginning of their wilderness journey on the edge of the wilderness. And once they're in the wilderness, they continue doing what they've been doing for years, complain about their masters. They weren't the first ones to complain. They won't be the last. But but these complaints were born out of a desperation. But beyond just the desperation of their situation, they were born out of a mentality of scarcity. We don't know what we're going to get. We don't know when we're going to get more, and we better grab whatever we can, hoard it, and make sure that we have enough for tomorrow because no one is looking out for us. Pharaoh, the captains, no one. We have to take matters into our own hands. Walter Brueggemann, who is an excellent Old Testament scholar, points out that as slaves, these Israelites would have bought into this mentality of scarcity. And when we live with this myth of scarcity, we get greedy. We hoard because we're afraid there won't be enough for tomorrow. (laughs) Do you remember the ridiculousness of the hoarding of toilet paper? I mean, there's probably people who are still using toilet paper that they bought at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> but what did what what caused that? Was there a shortage of toilet paper? No, it was a mentality that if I don't grab enough, if I don't have enough, then I am going to be hurting. And so I want to grab more than enough because I'm afraid there is going to be a scarcity. So you have these civilized, educated people putting posts and sending text messages. Hey, do you know where the toilet paper is? Well, there's a guy on the corner. And, and you know, maybe you could find some in this back alley. And, and it's just the craziest thing in the world. And there was never a shortage. Uh, 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 the, the myth of scarcity. They're not alone, are they? How much money do you need to retire? Uh, the closer I get to age 65... Uh, the more and more ads I see popping up on my my feed and and my emails and my regular snail mail. But do you have enough? Are you sure you have enough? 
Well, I don't know. How much do I need? Well, you can never have enough. You better get more. Is enough ever enough? Well, God is trying to teach the people of Israel in their beginning stages of a nation. Something that Brueggemann calls the lyric of abundance. What God's trying to teach them is that in my creation, there is enough. There is an abundance. There is plentiful resources. But in order for us to be able to share those resources and complete the mission that God has for us, we have to fight the urge to be greedy. We have to fight the urge to hoard. We have to fight the urge to big builder barns and store up more things so that we will be secure in the future. So God is teaching them through this process of looking for manna every day. He teaches them to take just what they need. No more and no less. What would that look like just from a food standpoint? I have some friends who um, don't have a refrigerator. And so if they want fresh, cold items, they buy it fresh every single day. And I think, how tiresome would that be? <laughs> it's so much easier to buy a gallon jug of milk rather than a pint every day. And yet there's a sense where I don't know what tomorrow brings, and so I'm going to buy or I'm going to have what I need for today. And that's what God is trying to teach his people. Enough is enough. You know, that's an interesting phrase. Enough is enough. In the old days, when it first started being used, it meant I have enough and, and I don't need any more. But then as time went on, it transitioned to its current use when you hear people complaining, when you hear people going on and on and on, generally with a raised voice, with a couple of exclamation points, you say, enough, enough is enough, no more. We're not going to continue to have this. You should be satisfied with what you already have. And whether it's parents telling children, teachers telling students, whatever it is, enough is enough. <laughs> it's interesting how that changed. Speaking of complainers, how do you respond when people complain to you? Whether it be at work, whether it be at home, whether it be at church. Do, do the complaints that get to you, do they motivate you to be better? Or, or do they just get under your skin and just kind of make you mad? Are complaints good or bad? Positive or negative? Uh, at the beginning of last year, January 2, 2020, there was an article in the New York Times about complaining. And the article cites Dr. Robin Kowalski, a professor of psychology at Clemson University. So here's Kowalski's answer to whether it is good or bad to complain. She says, yes, it's good to complain. Yes, it's bad to complain. And yes, there's a right way to do it. Because you see, complaining is a natural response when things don't go the way we want or the way we expect them to go. 
And the Jewish people are experts at complaining. Now, the Bible records a number of those complaints. They're called laments. In fact, in the book of Psalms, there's more laments than any other type or category of Psalms. God, how long? Don't you see our pain? Why do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Where are you? Lament. Complaint. Perhaps the most well-known complaint written in the Psalms was quoted by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? It's a natural response when things don't go the way we think they should. So when the freed slaves complained about the lack of food, they had been used to been given, they, they were given their slop or whatever it was they were supposed to eat. But when they complained to God about their lack of food, God heard their complaint and responds by giving them food. Manna in the morning, quail at night. Now, you might have heard me say at one point that my breakfast choice is easy because I eat the same thing every morning. I eat cereal. And, and if you want to know the reason, there's a theological reason, because I think this manna is kind of like the frosted flakes. And so God has been preparing honey laced uh, pieces of carbohydrate for a long time for his people. And, uh, and, and, and who am I to argue with what God wants to give us for breakfast? But you know the thing that's amazing about this text? God doesn't get mad, at least not yet. He doesn't backhand these Israelites thinking these no good for nothing. Why are they complaining? He doesn't get impatient with them. He hears their complaint and gives them exactly what they asked for, food. They asked for water previously, and he gave them that. So complaining can be good. But complaining can be bad when it degrades into grumbling and murmuring. Kowalski warns about wearing muddy glasses where no matter what's going on, everything you see is bad or wrong. It's rehashing a problem over and over, whether it's with friends or the, the, what she refers to as the echo chamber of the Internet. And the more you complain, the more you find people who kind of feed that desire to complain. So when the Israelites initially complained, God heard and responded. But when they kept at it, time after time after time after time, God got frustrated and got angry with his people. By the time you get to the Apostle Paul, uh, when he's writing to the church in Philippi, Paul says... Do everything without complaining or arguing. And so that's kind of where we are. So is there a right way to complain? Well, I think there is. I think first you have to make sure that it's a valid, a real concern. Make sure it's a real concern, that you're just not complaining about something that ultimately doesn't really matter. Thomas Cook Vacations is one of the largest tour providers in the UK. And, and they've posted a number of true 
complaints that people have written about some of their tours. And these are taken from their website and taken from the uh, uh, surveys that people fill out. One says, although the brochure said that there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawers. The roads were uneven and bumpy so that we could not read the local guidebook during the bus ride to the resort. Because of this, we were unaware of many things that would have made our holiday much more fun. It took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica to England. It took the Americans only three hours to get home. This seems unfair. And, and this was to some visitors, a tour in Spain. There were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was Spanish. No one told us that there would be so many foreigners. I was bitten by a mosquito. The brochure did not mention mosquitoes. No one told us there would be fish in the water. Our children were scared of the fish. Well, those we can recognize are senseless complaints. So when you feel the urge to complain, make sure that it's significant, it's worthwhile. Pray about it, think about it, and decide whether it's worth passing up or down or side to side. Make sure it's a real concern. The Israelites had a real concern. They did not know what they were going to eat. Now, keep in mind that when they left Egypt, remember that they got all the things from the Egyptians. So they had gold and they had silver, they had livestock. They didn't want to touch what they had, and so they were in this predicament. They wouldn't have starved. They would have eaten their flocks, but they wouldn't have starved. But God honors their complaint because he considered that it was valid. Secondly, make sure that you express your complaint with the right spirit. The right spirit is a gentle and humble Spirit. The goal is not to destroy someone, it is to restore, to renew, to improve. At this particular moment, Moses and Aaron felt a little threatened. Further, and further down the road, they're going to feel even more threatened to the point that they felt like this mob was going to attack them. And so that complaint lost some of its validity when it became a mob. A third thing, make sure you talk to the right person. Now, the complaints in Exodus were about God, but they weren't to God, not directly. In the Psalms, what we have are the Israelites lamenting or complaining directly to God. In D.C., there's a nonprofit that has, is typically on the top ten list of nonprofits in D.C. called the American Institutes for Research. And they did a study on dissatisfied customers and found out that most organizations will hear nothing from 96% of customers who receive rude or discourteous service. 96% say nothing. But each of those dissatisfied customers will tell his or her story to an average of nine other people, not to the company, but to nine other people. In Matthew 18, Jesus encourages us to talk directly to the people with whom we have an issue, who have offended us. 
And I think the model that we see from the Israelites is what God wants us when we have a complaint to talk directly to him. Because that leads us to our fourth and final point. Make sure that we're willing to be a part of the solution. See, God heard the complaints and then he provided an answer. But the answer wasn't that MREs, meals ready to eat, just showed up inside their tent. They had to go out and harvest their food every single day. God said, I'm going to provide you food, but you have to be a part of the solution. You need to be a part of this process. When the quails showed up, they weren't already dressed and cooked and with a sauce and just ready to eat. They had to be captured. They had to be plucked. They had to be cooked. God wanted them to be a part of the solution. So make sure it's a legitimate concern. Make sure you express your concern with the right spirit. Make sure that you talk to the right people and make sure that you're willing to be a part of the solution. The bigger question for me in all this is why did God allow the people to complain? Why did he just let it happen? Shouldn't this garnered some sort of rebuke? Well, I think it's because a complaint or lament is proof of a relationship. These 96% of people that were dissatisfied and never said anything, they had no relationship with that company or that organization. When our kids are unhappy, they have no problem interrupting our lives and waking us up or disturbing our peace to tell us what they need and what they want. Because I think deep down they know that we love them and ultimately we want the best for them. In his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore describes going to an orphanage in Russia as, a, as they were in the process of pursuing adoption. He writes that the silence from the nursery was eerie. The babies in the cribs never cried. And it wasn't because they didn't need anything. It's because they had learned that no one cared enough to answer. So children who are confident in the love of a caregiver cry because they know and trust that their cry will be heard. The Israelites, for all of their faults as imperfect people, trusted that God would hear their complaint and would respond because our relationship with God is deep and we are connected to a caregiver who does care. God sustains us with daily bread. He is present in the here and the now. But many of our concerns are for the future, but what if and what about and yeah, but down the road. And so I think it's interesting that in verse 10, as Aaron is speaking to the entire community of Israel, he leads them to look out into the wilderness to where they're going to go. And there they see the glory of God. The glory of God was with them where they were, but it was also with them down the road because that's where the unknown wilderness of uncertainty fills us with anxiety, uneasiness. We don't know, okay, I'm good today, but I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so he invites us into a daily relationship with him. And sometimes we cry out in pain and desperation. 
Sometimes we cry out with shouts of thanksgiving. But God is present to celebrate those times of good fortune and to weep with us in times of despair. And he is present down the road where our fears can sometimes get the best of us. God invites each of us into a daily relationship with him. If you'd like some help thinking through out loud what that looks like, please give one of us a call. Please uh, make it known on the chat in the Facebook. But one way or another, uh, please communicate your need and your desire. We want to be a people that hears and that listens not only to God, but also to our community. And so uh, please share those uh, concerns uh, with uh, this congregation.